Welcome to Dear Human Resources. In each episode, you'll hear about current HR topics and trends from experts, both practitioners and researchers, with the goal of giving you an insider's look at human resources. I'm your host, Marilyn Germain. We welcome Dr. Bill Satterwhite, a physician, attorney, health tech entrepreneur, and the former chief wellness officer at Wake Forest Baptist Health. He discusses the use of technology to stay in touch with employees' well-being and how HR professionals can reclaim their time and sanity in this pandemic era. Welcome, Bill. Thank you so much for having me, Marie. Bill, as a former chief wellness officer at Wake Forest Baptist Health, you are uniquely positioned to discuss employee well-being. What employee well-being initiatives did you oversee in your role as chief wellness officer? Yeah, there were a number of different things that I oversaw within you know, the first year or so. The internal wellness program came under me that historically involved some of the standard things like biometric screenings for blood pressure, cholesterol, et cetera, um, health risk assessments, many of that information and, and, and folks doing it would translate then into health coaching and, and things like that. As time went on, um, things like stress, burnout began to become an issue that was much more prevalent. And so I was part of several initiatives designed to address some of that with the individual clinicians. So one of them, for example, was what we called peer-to-peer. It really was about taking a number of doctors and other clinicians, going through training on how to have essentially listening conversations with their colleagues who were undergoing a lot of stress or maybe feeling burned out. It was, it was really interesting. I'll tell you two different sides to that. The, the, um, the person who came and did the training for us uh, had established a, a great system back at the healthcare entity that she worked with. And you know, her recommendation was, really, you need to make this proactive. So what do you mean by that? She said, well, you need to make it so people, people feel okay reaching out to refer someone else into this peer program so that you might see me, for example, let's say you and I are colleagues. And so, you know, Marie, you, you call the hotline number and say, I think it'd be worth somebody having a conversation with Bill. He's really stressed or he's really burned out. And, and so we started out that way. And uh, in the first year, we had probably 20 or so calls of some sort. Now, you could refer yourself to, but calls or some sort that came in and everyone was practiced up on what they would say when they reached out. Typically, it was, you know, this is Bill Satterwhite. I'm one of the peer supporters. And I'd just like to issue an invitation for a conversation or a cup of coffee just to see how you're doing. And one of the interesting reactions that we got that was fairly prevalent was who turned me in, right? So who turned me in? We were like, oh, that's not the, that's not the way we wanted that to sound. And no matter how much we explained, you know, I'm not with HR, I'm not with the legal department, I'm not with anybody. That was hard. So the next year we flipped it and said, okay, let's make it self-report. You just, you just call up if you need help. Guess how many people reached out? Probably fewer yeah, zero, actually, because even though, you know, on surveys, a third of our people would clearly be uh, stressed out and burned out or burning out, no one would reach out. It's just not part of what you do in a profession like medicine. You know, interestingly enough, medicine is really 
more about caring for the well-being of others than it is caring for the well-being of yourself. And in fact, much of the training to become a doctor is, is kind of anti-self-well-being. I mean, truly, I did not think this was possible, but truly, I used to, you know, in my training, get to the hospital at 5 a.m., work all day, work all night, work all the next day and go home and get up and do it again. And so this idea of sort of well-being of the doctor it is really like swimming upstream against the Mississippi River. It's, it's, a, it's a heavy lift. It's very hard. And so it makes doing things on a broad scale really hard to get a lot of traction. And there were other support groups that we had. There were, there was, we went through a phase of doing what was called a peaceful pause that sort of came through on the computer, let everyone stop and uh, either hear something for a minute or something like that. But, you know, only a few hundred people actually took part in that or could take part in that. Most of the time, if you're a frontline clinician, you're actually busy all day long. So part of this is really coming in around one of the main points I would like to make, which is much of the focus these days, whether it's in healthcare or other areas of, of business or work, is around this idea of resiliency. We've got to increase the resiliency of the people working, you know, the doctors, the lawyers, the other folks, because they're just, you know, they're just falling apart. They need more resiliency. But what I would put forth is, is that most people that go in those professions are incredibly resilient already, right? I've already described sort of the training that happens to become a doctor. You don't get through that if you don't have a high level of personal resiliency. And so to some extent, I'm always a little bit now kind of, hmm, seems like you're almost blaming the, the doctor or the nurse or the lawyer, whatever the context is for not being resilient enough. But that's not actually what drives burnout. So if you were to look at the literature, mostly what drives burnout are system things, things that are big and are broad and, and drive what happens day to day for the workers. And that's actually where the energy has to go. If you want to decrease stress, if you want to decrease burnout. Now, the problem is that means, number one, changing the way things are currently being done. And number two, that usually takes money or resources of some kind. And so that's a very heavy lift for organizations to take on, whereas it's a much easier lift to start a program or have some talks or have some groups. So why did you leave that particular area of employee well-being? Well, it, it was actually interesting. A lot of that was going on internally for me at the medical center and then externally I actually started having a huge amount of success changing the system within some companies because they were very, very interested in having healthcare be done differently. And, and to, to address a number of issues for many, many people, you've actually got to start with basic healthcare. You can go higher up sort of the, the almost like Maslow hierarchy of needs. You could go higher up and say, let's address you know, wellness matters. But a lot of times if people haven't been able to address what I'll call sickness matters, do, doing wellness matters doesn't really work. With outside companies, I began putting um, caregivers on site, set up with direct contracts. So we weren't doing insurance. Sometimes they were nurses trained as health coaches. Sometimes they were counselors who acted as, they, they were almost like EMS first responders for people who were in crisis. HR loved that. Every single HR person where we had someone like that said, this is a game changer for me. 
it actually relates to one of the other lines of thought that we might talk about in a minute. But the idea was really to say, how can we take care to the people, begin with the basic important stuff and, and have that be the starting place for moving people down a path to wellness? Because if there are significant issues in life, you know, trying to get 10,000 steps a day doesn't really have an impact. And so had lots of success doing that. And then um, felt like I had just sort of reached a place where I was ready for a new challenge and the opportunity to head this health tech startup that I had been involved with um, off and on over the years came up. And so I decided to go for it. So you suggest using technology, you're talking about starting a startup here, to stay in touch with employees' well-being. Can you expand on that? My observation with technology is, is it can either separate people or it can bring them closer together. Separating them doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. I mean, I think about like the, the banking app that I have, right? I no longer go into the bank and stand in front of a teller and deposit a check, right? I can just use technology to do that, you know, from my house. And, and so that's a good thing. It's made things easier for me. And it wasn't a significant relationship with the teller. But other times technology ends up separating a user from the person that is really helping them the most. And so in, in the technology that this company I'm working with designed, we said, we want it to go the other way. We want technology to draw those people closer together, not move them further apart. So in the counselor setting, for instance, you have these counselors on site, they're sort of responding to crises that people are in. They're not really doing, uh, you know, diagnosis and therapy with them like you would in a sit down counselor's office. They are more responding to people in crisis, checking in on them, making sure they're okay, getting them to counselors or psychiatrists or whoever they might need if things are bad. And, and they approached me and said, you know, we'd love to be able to check in on these 30 or 40 or 50 people that we're sort of, sort of kind of following and working with, but we don't have the time to call them all up every day. And we don't really want to be in texting conversations with them. Can you create some technology that would allow us to push out, in essence, a text message with a link in it that would go to that person's survey that would then in essence ask about five or six questions on how they're doing today. And when they hit submit, then we're able to uh, see how they are doing on the back end. And then we know who to concentrate on. You know, they would often say, oh, among the 50 people that, you know, I'm sort of helping, probably five of them are gonna be having a hard time. The problem is I just don't know which five. And so uh, this helps in a scalable way, in an efficiency way, to make the work better for the counselor to connect with the people that actually need them in the time that they need them. Oftentimes that's out of sync. It's very arbitrary the way, the way it's often done. And so that's a good example of the technology drawing those folks closer together because um, the messaging back and forth that can take place through the technology can be very personalized, even though it's automated. And, and so, um, you know, to me, that's a good high use of that technology. As a pediatrician myself, a provider myself, I don't like technology that disintermediates me from my patient. You know, that sort of shifts the whole focus of care to someone else. So, so an example of that is there are apps out there that, you know, are used for things like diabetes control. They can be very helpful. Um, 
but if you have an issue, you know, it's, it's somebody in a faraway place who's trying to answer or respond, not actually the person who's your caregiver, like your doctor. And so I felt like I wanted to go in the other direction from that. Does that mean you're not totally in sync with the use of artificial intelligence, for example, in medicine? Well, no, I think, I think that's a little bit different, um, different situation. The, uh, the reality is that there's far too much information out there to, to know that, you know, even the smartest doctor can't keep in their head. So a long time ago, that wasn't as true. So I used to tease my, my father, who was an ears and throat doctor, that, you know, when he went to medical school in the 50s and they had a class on pharmacology, all they studied was penicillin because they didn't have anything else. I was like, it was one lecture, dad, come on. Of course, he did not laugh at that, but I'm sure it was more than one lecture. But the point is, there's now so much medical knowledge and so much information that to me, it's a wise use of computers and technology to actually use artificial intelligence to have algorithms, to have other things that can um, supplement, you know, what a learned person is doing, because you actually can't know it all. And, and there are, you know, clear trends and patterns and things that uh, don't necessarily, you know, need somebody who's had four years of college and four years of med school and lots of years of training. And, and I think that's a, that's a good use of that because the goal is ultimately for people to be healthier. Right? I mean, that's the goal. Research shows that employees leave for a variety of reasons, right? Leave their jobs for a variety right. of reasons. One of them is, you know, they don't like their boss. Two, they don't make enough money. Yep. Three, they, they're not happy, right? Perhaps they're uh, their well-being is compromised. So, in fact, data show that employees, including in healthcare, quit their jobs like never before, right? We call it the, the great resignation. Yep. And I uh, remember a November 2021 article from U.S. News saying that, you know, 20% of healthcare staff have quit their jobs since the pandemic began, and mainly because of burnout. So yeah. how, how can healthcare leaders prevent employees from leaving their jobs? I'll say this as background, which is probably covered in the articles, but, you know, in many ways, the pandemic created the perfect storm. Most, most hospital systems were already short staffed from a nursing standpoint. It's very unusual to find a hospital that had, you know, all the nurses they needed. And so, so the system was already strained and then um, you, you layer into that something like a pandemic where you now have a surge in demand. And that is the perfect recipe for people to say, man, I think I'm done. I've had enough, you know, and, and they may step out of healthcare totally, or they may step from that to a different kind of work setting that might uh, be less stressful uh, for them. And so that, that perfect storm was definitely there. The, the issues around decreasing turnover actually aren't any different now than they were during, well, there may be a few different ones, which I'll delicately mention in a minute, but the, you, know, you have the main issues of staff shortages. You have things that everyone knows could be done like decreasing shifts from 12 hours to eight hours. The number of mistakes goes down when you do that the sort of restfulness of everyone goes up. But that means you now need three people 
to fill a 24 hour shift instead of just two. And so there's a cost burden there. And, and that makes that hard. That is one of the things that can be done. The dilemma though is, you know, most healthcare, healthcare entities are extremely stretched for dollars, extremely stretched. And, and so um, it is a very, very difficult situation. And to me, the primary remedy is actually uh, addressing the system issues that are causing the burnout. So short staff is one, how do we create a pipeline for uh, CNAs and for um, LPNs that can also fill a lot of those slots? Um, I will say though, having been a healthcare executive, you know, you don't have control over your pricing to the extent people think because Medicare is your main payer. It's kind of what we call a third party payer. You have insurance, et cetera. And so um, unlike other private businesses, where if I decided, you know, we need to double our staff and we're going to have to raise our prices, I might be able to do that and see what happens. That's very hard to do in healthcare, actually. And, and so it's a huge dilemma. It's a huge dilemma on what to do. I think that, um, that having, you know, the on-site counselors, the person to go to, often what I call sort of the easy button when you're having a hard time, would be a relatively inexpensive, high reward type offering to have. The other things that are helpful, and, and this is what comes up on, on many, many surveys that are around stress or burnout, et cetera. Um, most of the time people are looking for, you know, more resources like I mentioned, or flexibility in their schedule or help with the electronic health record. I mean, one of the, one of the things that is very true is the people who are spending hours and hours after work every day trying to complete their charts online are typically headed for some kind of burnout. And, and that's those are reports that one can run. Uh, you could run a report on me and say, when is Bill on his computer, uh, even from home? And, and so that's, you know, that's an area where many places say we have got to make sure that every person is using this electronic health record in the optimal way the electronic health records aren't, aren't like, you know, buying Microsoft Office where everything just comes ready to work. They actually are much more like the institution buying the framework or chassis for a car and the institution puts certain doors and features on it. And then the individual has to do more. And so there's a pretty heavy lift to get to a place where, where it's set up for one to use efficiently. And then, oh, by the way, everyone's using the same chart and we don't all think and want to put things in in the same way. And while there are some boundaries on that, sometimes it feels like it's like, uh, you know, 20 people sharing the same closet. The clothes get all mixed up, you know, <laughs> and I like all my certain shirts in one area and you like them in a different area. So there are a lot of challenges in there. And certainly when the pandemic hit and healthcare felt like we were all bailing the boat, it's hard to take on anything else. You know, it's hard to address some of those issues. That's a long answer because there's it's it's a very very difficult difficult problem, right? And there's no there has not been one solution for it. So you have right. to look no at one it. solution. Nothing easy. Again, I, I think probably the most important thing is to start addressing things from a systems perspective as opposed to an individual one. There's a lot more bang for the buck there. Bill, you're the CEO of a tech company called Sneeze, S-N-E-E-Z. 
Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I'd love to. So Sneeze actually first got started in my head a decade ago when I was seeing lots of sick children and I just kept thinking it would be so helpful if I knew what was going around uh, with more specificity than, you know, sort of a statewide flu map by the CDC. And, and I knew that parents would ask that their child would have a sore throat in the morning. They're always trying to figure out, okay, do I take them out of school? Do I get off work? Do I take them in? Is strep going around? If it is, it's probably worth it. If it's not, it's probably not. And I will have wasted my time and money. And, and so I began uh, trying to figure out, could we have, at that time, a crowdsourced illness app that might be tied to schools or something and, and indicate, you know, what infections were going around and that that would be helpful. Um, it, 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 we did that for a year or so, and that was pretty successful. We then morphed to have partnerships with healthcare entities to create um, more robust platforms for diagnoses and what was going around. And then the pandemic hit. And so um, that shifted focus away from that type of technology to initially a piece of technology called Sneeze Safe. We were playing on the original word. And this was a COVID symptom survey tool. And, and it was being used by a number of businesses uh, in the triad area of North Carolina. Some others, states had businesses using it. Wake Forest University used it for all their faculty and staff when they got back on campus. And it was a, a, a very sort of elegant way to use technology to screen people every day to see if they had symptoms that might be COVID. And if they did, they, in essence, were uh, sent straight to either uh, the nurse or a testing station, whatever the setup was, um, to determine whether they might have COVID. And, and that's where I really saw the amazing efficiency and scalability of technology. So we can use Wake Forest University again as an example. They're, they're sending out this push text every morning to students, faculty, and staff. And it was roughly 9,000 people. And you know, within minutes, it was clear which 30 people needed to talk to somebody. I mean, it was stunningly effective. I was like, wow, I wish I could run a pediatric practice like that. Um, then you know exactly who you need to see. And so that was one piece of technology that was created during COVID that was very successful and helpful. And we branched off from that to create one called Zwell Being, which I mentioned um, that we used within the uh, sort of company business setting with counselors um, designed to see how people were doing just from a uh, sort of social mental uh, standpoint. And, and so it's been, it's been a fun journey. It's interesting to, you know, wear a different hat again and um, health tech is a real overlap of, you know, the medical knowledge and experience that I have plus the legal knowledge and experience I have. And I think it's a very promising area in general. Uh, you know, most of the big tech companies are actually getting into health and health care. I don't know if you've tracked any of that, but uh, it can be as simple as Apple Watch, you know, tracking one's blood pressure and other things to uh, Amazon, who is literally beginning to open up clinics across the country. So uh, tech, health care, very, very overlaid with each other. Speaking of switching hats. You were an attorney before becoming a medical doctor. <laughs> yes, I was. Why did you decide to shift your career? 
Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I'll give you the short version. Uh, there was a lot about the place I was working and the things that I was learning that I liked. And, um, and it was very, very good. And certainly at this stage of life has paid off handsomely. Um, but I also felt like this was not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And so after about five years in it, right when I was really getting good, I decided that I would leave. Wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Felt like I wanted something that put me a little bit more in touch face-to-face with people. And though I was not a pre-med major in undergrad school, I uh, ended up feeling just very called to go into medicine and and to go down that path. And so that began a journey of um, having to take science classes and the MCAT and applying to med school. And I ended up going to med school when I was 31 and had three children. That's really when everyone's finishing, you know? <laughs> and here I am starting. That was how that how that happened. It was not lightly done nor quickly done. And there certainly are some days I wake up and think, "What was I doing?" You know, but there are other days I wake up and go, "Man, I'm so glad that I have done these things because I have a deep well to draw on," and um, and it's been very helpful knowing both those fields and trying to do things differently in healthcare. I often would tease my healthcare colleagues that, you know, they're happy for you to innovate as long as there's no risk and there's no variation and there's no failure. (laughs) (laughs) That is what innovation is, right? It's risky, it's variation, it fails, right? And and so there were many times, um, having been somebody who understands healthcare law, uh, where I could push back on sort of the system. The system is sort of designed, you know, if you have no risk and the answer is always no. And, and so I was able to push back a lot on that and either say, well, can we do it this way? Or show me the law you're talking about or the regulations and then figure out a way to comply with the law, but also accomplish doing something new. Even in, the, even in what I call the direct to employer work that I did a lot of at Wake Forest Baptist, setting up on-site care models for companies, not filing insurance, getting paid directly, et cetera. A lot of that would not have happened had I not had a really good knowledge of health law um, because we were doing something different and doing it differently. And it was okay to do it, but no one really had done that. So there was a lot of institutional learning that had to take place and and I have a bit of a stubborn streak, so I wasn't going to let go of it very easily. So that turned out really well. Let's come back to well-being. And I'm going to ask you one last question about it. And, and I want to turn our attention to uh, HR professionals and their well-being. How do you suggest they, and I quote you here, can reclaim their time and sanity in this pandemic era? HR leaders have gotten pummeled by the pandemic. Most of them that I have interacted with you know, have been totally overwhelmed. They're like, I have another day job. And then all of a sudden I'm dealing with all this stuff related to the pandemic and trying to manage a lot of the details on who should come to work and who shouldn't and who's in quarantine and for how long, et cetera. And so one of my thoughts, besides doing something like having an onsite counselor or an easy button to call is back to the technology. How can you use technology to help decrease that, that workload Secondly, are there tasks and functions that you actually can outsource? 
that somebody else could do. There are lots of outsourcing companies now that can handle a lot of HR functions. And I would say this is particularly important in those sort of mid to smaller companies. You know, they're really big, big companies. If you've got 50,000 employees, you've got more than two people in your HR department. But a lot of companies that have 200 to 1,000 people, they don't. There's often one person. And so it's been a very, very heavy lift for them to get through the last two years now almost. And so to them, I would say, you have got to figure out a way to offload a lot of that work, figure out what it is you just need to do. And then like everyone else, you got to figure out how you take care of yourself and, and what are the ways that you release that stress. Oftentimes I'll, I'll think about stress like, a friend of mine um, was telling me that he had a son who, um, whose job it was, it's kind of a mathematical family. He said, well, my son's job is to figure out how much power the power company should produce every day. I was kind of like nonchalantly, oh, okay, whatever. I mean, I was sort of unimpressed and thinking it was just like, you know, the donut company figuring out how many donuts I need to make today. What's the big deal? And he could tell from the look on my face that I was not taking it seriously. So he said, Bill, um, here's the thing. When you produce power, if you produce too much, you can't just throw it away. It has to go somewhere. It has to go somewhere. And I thought, never thought about that, right? Because you're creating this electricity. What what are you going to do with it? I, I mean, I can throw extra donuts in the trash. You can't do that with electricity. And so I've thought about that a lot as it relates to stress, that stress gets generated within us and it has to go somewhere. And so you have to figure out in life, what are your means for discharging that stress? And some people pick bad ways, right? Lots of angry outbursts or, you know, they have marital affairs or they do drugs or drink a lot or whatever. Um, Or people can find good ways to do that, like exercise, meditation, prayer, thinking about the food they eat. I mean, our bodies have a physiologic response to stress. They all do. And no human being is like impervious to that, right? And and so, um, you know, what we eat uh, impacts sort of our own biophysical response in general, and there are things that we can do that up the, up the energy level that's not good if you're stressed, things you can eat and drink that decrease the energy level. And so those are all things that people in HR actually need to be aware of um, because it's, it's been quite a run. I mean, it's one thing to have a stressful stretch of two months. It's another to have a stressful stretch of two years. Those are very, very different. Thank you, Bill, for your insights on healthcare and for your wellness. And we wish you the best with uh, your company, C's. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dear Human Resources. In each episode, you will hear about current HR topics and trends from experts, both practitioners and researchers, with the goal of giving you an insider's look at human resources.